makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chante washte na pechus up yellow, let unkipiki he washtelo. Ohola Scotty Wichoni, greetings and good day, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and today is a beautiful day. It's good for all of us to be here. Let the people hear your voice respectfully, celebrate life, and in addition, in addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. Uh, First Voices Radio, national and international, I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touched earth at once. I'm your host, Teokasen Ghost Horse. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 28th year broadcasting 
and Liz Hill is our first Voices Radio producers, outstanding producer, excuse me, I said that wrong, but it's English. You can hear me now and First Voices on firstvoices.buzzsprout.com, which is an iTunes, Apple podcast platform. Also, you can look at the archives, firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. Our first guest, our first guest, which is a very important, very important guest to, to understand what's going on in Nova Scotia, Canada, because I think people are not hearing enough about what is going on in uh, the northern part of this continent called North America. We Some some of us uh, natives call Turtle Island. And I'd like to bring Chief T- Terrence Paul, who is a co-chair in fisheries lead for the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs. And Chief Paul has held a position of Chief of Member to First Nations since 1984. And this time, Chief Paul has guided his community and, and administration into one of the most open and efficient native communities in all of Canada. And he has achieved many accomplishments in his role as chief, including doubling the land base for the member to reserve. Um, I'd like to bring Chief Paul right now because, Chief Paul, there is something going on in Canada, like I, like I said, with the Mi'kmaq as considered, uh, considering the fisheries dilemma that's going on there as it is to them, as it should not be to the Native people because of, of our long uh, uh, territory or permanence as we've always been here as Native people. I'd like to welcome you. It's an honor to welcome you to First Voices, Chief Paul. Thank you. Thank you. So what what is going on in Nova Scotia? I think that the calling for immediate action of, from the federal government regarding the lobster fishing, and we know that there is now violence and perhaps people injured in that part of the world, Nova Scotia. Uh, yes, well, uh, tensions are really, really high here, and uh, we're working hard to uh, try and uh, come up with solutions that would uh, help uh, uh, make it safer to uh, fish in the waters. Uh, just to give a background of uh, why why we're fishing here and why the tensions are so much here, it's, uh, I mean, uh, the, the Mi'kmaq have well, been here for at least uh, 13,000 years, so... Uh, I don't want to go back that far, but uh, this is how how long we've been here. Uh, back in um, the uh, 18th century, that would be uh, 1760, 61. We had signed uh, uh, a, a treaty with the with, his, with the British Crown, and uh, part of that um, uh, benefits of the treaty that uh, that we had uh, we had the right to uh, fish. Fish for a livelihood for for ourselves or or our and or our families. So um, you know, it, it very soon after that, it was pretty well uh, disregarded over uh, over years, uh, and now probably about two hundred and fifty years later. Now uh, we we had a band member here from Member Two. Uh, his name was uh, Donald Marshall Jr. Uh, who passed away a few years ago, and he was a, a very, very good friend of mine. In fact, he was a, like like a brother to me. And uh, he was uh, out fishing for eels, and uh, he 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 knew about our treaties, and he felt that uh, we had to we we had the right to go out to uh, fish uh, for eels and and other uh, and other fish. So he did that, and he was continually harassed by the. Uh, the uh, the Canadian government through the uh, Department of Fishery and Fisheries and Oceans, and it went it was uh, constant and 
frequent. And I guess over a period of time, say about six months, we finally uh, had uh, had enough, and uh, we uh, um, and he was charged uh, for fishing out of season, and uh, and and uh, not within the uh, the uh, the regulations that the uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans has called the uh, Fisheries Act. So we challenged that in court uh, using our treaties of 1760-61, and uh, he won. So we won. We won, you know, and it was uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada, the highest court in the country, that uh, we indeed had a right to fish for our livelihood uh, without DFO interference, but more so uh, uh, DFO assistance. But uh, the government over the years, uh, since that the decision, the decision was uh, uh, brought down in uh, uh, 1999. So that was uh, 21 years ago. So uh, so we, we, we were patient and we did some, some interim agreements in the beginning, but they were supposed to be interim. And uh, 21 years later, uh, we, we felt that uh, it's time to uh, exercise our right. And so... Uh, a uh, number of our communities, and the first community to go out there was uh, Simiganegadi, and that's in the uh, uh, the mainland of Nova Scotia. <laughs> and uh, of course, all the uh, the chiefs in Nova Scotia supported them, and then other communities uh, have uh, since started. Uh, one uh, that's uh, very close to us, about seventy kilometers uh, from us, uh, where they started fishing for a livelihood. So uh, since that time, particularly the one in uh, what the area we call Southwest Nova and in the uh, St. Mary's uh, Bay area, and uh, the uh, Civic Anatic Band has been fishing there for, for their livelihood fishery and according to their uh, livelihood fishery plan. And all the communities in Nova Scotia, there's 13 of them, uh, Mi'kmaq communities that uh, are... Uh, have uh, e- either fishery plans or working on them, like we are in Member Two here. We're working on ours. We are uh, we are um, going to the fishers and the uh, community to get to get our, our authority on uh, developing uh, a fishery plan and which addresses the issue of uh, conservation and sustainability, and uh, that would uh, meet. Uh, the requirements of the decision, and that, that is the way we want to fish anyway. Make sure that conservation is uh, and sustainability is is met. So uh, that's a bit of a background of where we're at now. We we've been, uh, you know, the the communities that are fishing have been uh, have been harassed and uh, uh, just awful. Uh, you know, uh, I'm just astounded uh, by the uh, racism that's come out of this. And uh, as you may have seen in the news or heard that uh, we had buildings burned, uh, vehicles burned, uh, uh, a chief was assaulted, uh, although there's charges uh, uh, being laid on that one. But uh, it, it's just uh, horrible, and uh, the, it's affecting all of us, and not only uh, out in the waters, but uh, it's beginning to affect us on the inland by, by the harassment that uh, our people are getting. So uh, we want the government to step in and uh, do something about this. I mean, uh, they're obligated to uh, ensure 
that uh, we are able to uh, exercise our right uh, to a livelihood fishery. And uh, we are, are no way affecting the, uh, the, uh, the conservation issues of uh, any species. Chief Terrence Paul, the, the inactions of the government have, um, and the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs who've been trying to get the government to pay attention, is a little um, angered there that the, the government is in delay and only escalating the situation further. When you clearly watch the videos um, on social media and other other platforms, is that the police are not doing anything. They're just kind of, it seems to us as indigenous folks here in, in, in the United States is that they're only protecting the rights of the non-natives not to be hurt because actually the, the violence is 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 geared towards um, threat, sort of intimidating the native people from the waters that started way back in September 17th. Was it not September 17th that you ensued the pursuit of moderate livelihood from fishing, right? Yes, that was the uh, the Sebeganegadi band, the community that started on September 17th. They were the first community to vote uh, to exercise the livelihood fishery. And when you talk about the treaty rights to be fishing in the waters, and when when I saw saw that uh, they were saying you were fishing out of season, but to be to be sure, the treaty said all all year round, or was that just according to their rules and regulations that are of the modern day law of Canada? No, it's the modern day law of Canada. It's uh, the the fishing seasons are started. I mean, they have have been uh, established by the. Uh, the commercial fisheries, uh, uh, you know, uh, activities, and they, uh, uh, they, they, there's eight different market, uh, different lobster seasons in Nova Scotia, uh, so it's pretty well year round. Anyway, like in different parts of the province, depending on when the where the season opens, and uh, it and it's marketed, it's for marketing purposes. Mm. So it, it, it's a non-indigenous uh, commercial. Uh, marketing seasons, and we we feel that we have the right to fish for our livelihood fishery and not dependent on the uh, uh, on the marketing seasons. So Chief Paul, I'm I'm not too sure about the numbers compared to the commercial fishermen and the Mi'kmaq fishermen. Uh, it, it's very it's staggering. I read one where there was thirty thousand boats compared to roughly two hundred Mi'kmaq. Uh, f- uh, boats going out fishing, and and now the, the the majority is blaming the small small minority for overfishing or something like this. That's what I read someplace. Is that true, how, or how true is that? Yeah, we're probably close. Like I don't know exactly the numbers, but it's uh, you know our our effort into the fishery and and our total yeah, numbers uh, are just absolutely minuscule compared to the total effort. And then when, once the, the catch is made, and you mentioned that uh, maybe your storehouse was uh, was burned, including vehicles that were owned by the Mi'kmaq people, and uh, actually, was, was that storehouse belonging to Mi'kmaq rather than a, a fish buyer? I believe that it was a fish buyer, not a Mi'kmaq. But, and, but, the, uh, but the vehicles were uh, belonged to the Mi'kmaq. And in that burning of that storehouse, indeed, there were Mi'kmaq people endangered and maybe injured. I'm not too sure. 
uh, endangered, for sure. There was uh, one individual that was uh, uh, very badly hurt, as it was said in the nose, but it was, they didn't identify who that was. Uh, through the... Uh, the communications that we had, we we understand that it it was uh, it was not one of our, one of the Mi'kmaq. And and now the the non-native or non-indigenous fish buyers are are also are they being intimidated into not buying Mi'kmaq lobster and fish? Yes, yes, and uh, and and, and it's uh, spread more than that. Like I mean, like well, in the in the uh, Area like where our people are, aren't they? They refuse to be sold uh, gas or um, food items or or uh, even uh, bait for the fishery, and uh, it's just on and on. It's just uh, they make it uh, almost absolutely possible to uh, to be able to fish for the livelihood. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the um, the the repercussions of. People who are not involved in it are they more in support of of uh, the Mi'kmaq rather than the thirty thousand fishermen out there? Because I see a lot of support coming from Canadians themselves about keeping the treaty rights of the Mi'kmaq intact. Yeah, I mean, first of all, like I mean, I just want to clarify that it's certainly we're we're not. I mean, it's not all thirty thousand that are. Uh, uh, being being uh, ignorant and racist about this is a there's a small percentage of that, but it's causing consternation for everybody really, and uh, and that's one uh, uh, I wanted to uh, clarify, you know, and uh, it it is just absolutely uh, difficult, and uh, and you know we're I mean the intimidation is the method being used here, and I just. Uh, want to reiterate uh, like that uh, I mean it's not a matter of choice but uh, we're obligated like we Mi'kmaq are obligated to uh, exercise that right and we're not leaving we're not going away and we're not leaving the waters that the frustrations as as it says are all, all time high but is there any is there continuing to be a lack of action from the federal and provincial government so far well, we believe that because of uh, what has been happening, they certainly have uh, sat up and taken notice of uh, what's what's here, and uh, I, I believe that they got a, uh, a much clearer message that uh, something has to be done. So we 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 have had discussions with them. Uh, we, we 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 had a discussion with about three ministers Sunday, and uh, they were very sincere about what uh, they were trying to do. And that they were going to get a new mandate to to assist us in implementing the uh, the livelihood fishery plans. So uh, discussions will be uh, coming very soon, and from there we we hope that uh, uh, our vision becomes their vision, and that we uh, develop uh, uh, steps uh, that helps us uh, go forward in in our livelihood fishery. And until then, is there a police force in place, RCPM, RCMP in place to prevent any further violence? Uh, well, one of, yes, we, we part of that uh, discussion Sunday was with the uh, was with the minister responsible for the uh, enforcement uh, here, uh, mainly the RCMP, 
the Royal Canadian Mount of Peace, and uh, they, they have uh, increased uh, the presence in, in in those areas and uh, increased their presence in other community areas uh, to ensure that uh, uh, this violence doesn't reoccur or, or at least uh, help uh, that not to happen. We're speaking with Chief Terrence Paul, who is a co-chair and fisheries lead for the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs. And I'm wondering, because a lot of people, Native people here in the States and Canada are are watching, and and now I hear that uh, other tribes, other nations, other reserves are more concerned, and some are actually on their way to the Mi'kmaq territory, Nova Scotia. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Uh, we've, uh, we certainly uh, very much appreciate the uh, support. In fact, I, I got a call. I mean, I got a friend a call from a good friend of mine, the chief in uh, British Columbia, that's willing to come down here with his council to uh, show his support. So uh, uh, we, we certainly welcome that, and I will be speaking to the chiefs about that potential visit. But we also have to keep in mind the. Uh, the uh, the bubble that we have here and the uh, COVID-19 uh, issue that uh, the world is facing. So once we, we you mentioned conservation and sustainability, um, yet the Mi'kmaq are not taking more than their share because it's defined in, in the term that you said, the moderate livelihood. Could you define that a little bit more for us? Uh, well, first of all, we, 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 we are nowhere near what our share is, you know, and there's absolutely no, as you know, it, it does not, uh, uh, cause any conservation issues, uh, uh, compared to the, uh, total fishery as it's just so obvious, you know, and, uh, and, and um, moderate livelihood, uh, no one has defined that. Uh, we haven't either. And uh, speaking with our with our uh, communities, our chiefs, and our and our grand council, that uh, we really don't have to define that. And, you know what? Uh, what uh, we go under the principle of uh, what we call Nudugalink in our language, and what that means translates to loosely is that. Uh, is looking after one's own, and that's uh, it's all encompassing. Really, that's where we get from the uh, resources what we need to be able to look after our families. Um, um, thank you for for this interview, uh, Chief Terrence Paul. I think, as you say, this is not an illegal fishery, um, and that you are living up to that treaty that you say of 1761 with the British Crown, and I'm. You know, I'm I'm been been very interested since the start of, you know, the seventh September seventeenth when I first uh, viewed the, uh, the videos online and how they were blocking boats, uh, Mi'kmaq boats, from even reaching their traps and uh, to be on the ground there to to watch uh, this racism in action on the waters that were just free and according to Native people is free to everybody, including the fish. And I'm wondering. Your, your final thoughts on what we can look forward to? Well, yeah, like what you said, I just wanted to, uh, you know, our feelings, like, you know, is uh, one again of uh, just uh, 
amazement, but at the same time, it's 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 appalling, you know, and shameful for what has been happening to our people, and uh, you know, in this day and age, and in, in Canada and in Nova Scotia, we didn't think that things like that would be happening anymore, but apparently, uh, it's still there, still at the the subsurface, and uh, we we need to deal with that too. So what I hope for is that, uh, you know, the, and it is happening that we'll be sitting down with the government uh, to help us, you know, implement our treaty right to a community livelihood fishery. I'd like to thank you for your patience, Chief Paul, Terrence Paul. And, uh, you know, just thinking about you keeping track of what's going on. And I'd like to actually have another interview soon because I think it's important to to know that these hotspots around the Western Hemisphere with Native nations, including the Mi'kmaq, I think to have to, they're all related. And I think that's what our theme is here on First Voices Radio to make sure that the news that we don't hear from Indigenous peoples is heard. And I'd like to thank you for your patience, Terrence, Chief Terrence Paul. You're welcome, and I, I would be happy to contribute again, and I hope that uh, maybe the next interview will be uh, a happy one. <laughs> yes, I do. Thank you so much again um, for being here on First Voice. It's always an honor to talk to someone of your your uh, your statue coming from, the, from being a chief. Um, I'm always honored to do that. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, this is, In our language, Malali. Malali, thank you. And this is First Voices Radio, and that is Chief Terrence Paul from the Mi'kmaq and their situation that is going on in Nova Scotia. And we'll be here until things are clearly seen for what they really are.
and this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokus and Ghost Horse. You're listening to music for the off the album Music for the Mother, and it's put out by Underwater Panther Coalition. And the name of that track is Ganulu, which means Great Black Messenger Bird. And uh, it's it's actually from the Kogi, and that particular I believe it's from the Wiwa, one of the four Kogi nations down there in northern Colombia. Uh, near the Tierra de uh, Sierra Nevadas in the mountains there. So I want to bring that to light and that <clears throat> that's the first time it's been released ever of any recording as far as music is concerned. And uh, it's appropriate for this time. It's what's going on in, in Canada, across the Western Hemisphere for Native people. And uh, our concern for the earth continues. I had to put something out that came true for me the other night when I was, you know, my, my love for the earth is, is there. It's always been there since I remember. It's just not that I went to experience it. I, the experience was the earth for me all the time, even now when I'm in through the, the into the technicalities and of the programming of a computer to getting the education in the Western Hemisphere of the, the, the Northern or the European peoples and looking at life in a, in a very conceptual way uh, as they they see. But yet there's an energy here behind indigenous folks who really you can feel. And as as I get older in this life, I tend to see more clearly who, where, and and to understand the language that we're given as Lakota people, but also other indigenous folks is, you know, the perspective for the basis and the foundation of who we are as indigenous peoples, no matter what life we walk, uh, what path we, we walk down is is prevalent. In, and to see that, to describe in the language first um, the energy of a, of a person, of the people, and, uh, and then to describe the motion, it comes out in English words as inspirational, or just heartfelt, or something that's still a little detached. But I would like to, you know, have a conversation with, as I do with common people, because I'm one. And the common word for we as Lakota is Chasha, which means uh, just common person. And when I when I get to meeting younger people, I I sense this 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 intelligence that's kind of apropos for what's going on now and in. in the earth. And today I'm going to be interviewing Antonia Pere, and I hope that I'm saying that right, Antonia, who is a, a clinical herbalist and gardener and artist born and raised in New York City. And they have appreciated, excuse me, they have apprenticed with several herbalists around Northeast, Central and South America and in Thailand. And they graduated from Bard College, where they studied environmental and urban studies in 2015. And Arbor Vitae School of uh, Traditional Herbal Medicine in 2019. And they are a community organizer, gardener, food, and environmental justice educator. They are also the co-founder of Collectus Brujas and uh, Urban Urban Kukura. And they are passionate to share their knowledge with other folks, especially in urban centers, in order to interrupt notions of individualism and separatism from nature, and to grow towards collaborative and symbiotic communities. I want to welcome you, Antonia, to well, to First Voices Radio, Antonia. I'm honored that you've you. taken the time out to be with us. Um, 
we've known each other for a few years, Antonia, and uh, just kind of, you know, in, in my time watching younger people such as yourself, not to give co- kudos, because when you're in action with life, there is, it's like it's a continuum that it's amazing sometimes just to encounter the energies of young people such as yourself and to know that it's going to be okay and people are so scared of no future but i'm not as scared when especially i talk to young people such as yourself there's so much relationship that you have with with nature nurturing nature nurturing you i just want to say that before we even get into discussion um what i'm well i'm really interested in let's start this off with what is a clinical herbalist <laughs> what is a clinical herbalist um you know, as you were reading that and and I, I sent you my bio, I'm not so much resonating with that part of who I am in this moment. Um, but what, what it is is someone who's working with plants and supporting people who may be experiencing an imbalance um, physically, emotionally, mentally, and is in... Uh, need of of support and open to receiving support with the plants. Um, So understanding the plants profoundly to be able to support that person's unique uh, needs in that moment, understanding the the differences in constitutions of each person and understanding uh, the multitude uh, an existence of plants and seeing which one is best suited for this person. So you see herbalism right now in, in, in um, the sale of tinctures or glycerites commercially. And so these are general uh, herbal medicines that are being sold that anyone could, can buy that's of interest to them, but it's not necessarily specific to that person. So we're taking like an like an all general vitamin and hoping for the best rather than right. specifically looking for what ails us or what could Yeah, and, and yeah. seeing what the the work that I do as as an herbalist when I'm having consultations with people is really understanding a person's full story. Seeing how and why they're in, in the place that they're at right now and what sort of um, complete support they might need from the herbs. Is this something that is, is acute right now or something that's more chronic that has been existing for a longer period of time? Um, or are they just needing something to lift up their mood uh, right now or support with stress or nourishment? And I think this is, is beautiful when, when people are open and excited to engage with these plants um, because we're, we're literally consuming them and they're finding their way inside of us to uh, support us that they are our allies and have always been our allies for medicine since the beginning of, of human time you know? and for animals all, all around too. And, and that is interesting because I, I think the word that I would come up with, we're looking for a full spectrum a reading of, of the ailments or whatever we need to support our health 
mentally, spiritually, physically. And when mm-hmm. it comes to being a gardener, this is the part that I'm interested in. How does that fit into, of course, it's kind of obvious, but it's not so obvious, a gardener and an herbalist. To under- mm. Tie that together for me. Yeah, uh, thank you for bringing that up because I think that that often isn't spoken about. But to to do this work um, for me in, in the most integrity means that I have a relationship to the plants first and foremost. That it's not just a relationship to them that I've learned from a monograph of this plant does X, Y, and Z, and I'm buying this plant from this. Uh, business that sells herbs grown in some country overseas that's arriving to me in a plastic bag, and then I'm making dried tinctures or mixing teas together. Um, Absolutely, for many people, that is what they have access to, and that's completely fine. But for me and and what I'm learning to do right now um, and what makes sense to me is I I personally believe it's so powerful to be able to grow grow the herbs, to to dry them, to understand their needs, and to see myself also as a steward to these plants' health, just as I am with a human, to know that the plant that I am offering to this person, this human person, um, that, that herbal medicine that I'm giving to them, I know everything that went into it from the energy uh, that I had while I was making it, that it's very purposeful. And so I think an important thing for herbalists and people who are interested in getting into um, herbal medicine is to know where these plants are coming from and also to think about their health and their health as a part of the ecosystem because there's a big trend right now around wild foraging and we can just find all this food and this medicine and we might not even have a relationship to that land. What kinds of offerings are we bringing to this land? What other people have actually been on this land that have that that harvest here and that also are are planting and and have a dependency? So to me, it's a lot. it's It's a relationship and it takes time and patience and slowness and so much learning like for me gardening is is not linear and every time I, I I engage with planting seeds and tending to the plants I learn something new and I feel like such a baby even though I've been doing it for uh, a long time but objectively no time <laughs> yeah I, I, I see that I hear that um and I'm, you're, I'm reminded of of a late, late interview I did with uh, someone living in Alaska, when they left home, they left behind their traditional foods and had to go eat uh, the food that's supposed to be good for everyone, yet they got sick until they returned mm. back home and then they picked up their traditional foods, which made them healthy again. I don't think we're, we're really understanding, as you say, to be specific for, you know, one 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 person's healthy way may not be healthy for another person. Um, in in that uh, view of of understanding the differences between because because you know you can go you can go to a land and you say everybody's just into foraging and that without the respect of why we have to forage and as you say dependence on certain energies of the plants and and I'm thinking that the same sense that you are that in in the sense that you can grow the food. 
but we're, I think you're saying in a sense that the, the plants, the plants are growing you also, as you say, you keep learning, learning to do. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Without a doubt. And, and um, something that just came up as you were speaking is that as someone who grew up in, in New York City, I, I spent a lot of time facilitating workshops for my community to learn about the plants growing in New York City between the, the cracks in the concrete growing along the rivers and in the parks. And for me, what was of importance in doing that is making sure that for folks that are living in New York City, particularly um, folks of color, that we know what plants we can eat and we can use for medicine, right? Of course, we may not want to eat those plants that are growing from the concrete or uh, from, we need to be careful to know what was on that site before because the city is constantly changing. But I've always thought in that long term of we may be getting to a place where what if, what happens when we don't have the pharmacy or when we don't have access to food? How are we going to rely once again on what the earth is providing? But also, how are we going to learn to steward what the earth is already growing? And to make sure that for my community in the New York City that we're not being left behind. And being left behind is is why you work in, in the, the, the urban center. But I, I like the idea that you said that to... Um, to in order to interrupt notions of individualism and separatism from nature, but is it easier to find nature in the city than than when I met you living in 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 the, the Catskills where there's a little mm-hmm. more nature? Yeah, well, in in your introduction, you were you were speaking to how you see nature everywhere, right? Even as you're working on the computer and more technological centers that we're also moving towards, especially in this moment. And so, as you said that, I really resonate with that because everything is nature, right? The car, the building, there's nothing that does not come from the earth. Of course, it's been distorted and and changed and shifted and manipulated in this way where we can see this stark contrast from plastic that is going to take hundreds of if not thousands of years to fully decompose and be transformed by the earth. So, of course, in this manipulation, we've created objects that are not in harmony with the ways that the earth digests. But we also tend to think of time. um, It's difficult for us as people that have a short lifespan uh, to think of time as infinite, right, or, or, or longer than just our lives, which is, I think, a cause for why there's been so much destruction, because we think just about me, my individuality, or my family, or my own community, without thinking, oh, right, this needs to last, the water, the earth, the food, for all the generations that are to come. Um, so I, while I, I see everything in... in in urban, everything as nature, right, or coming from nature, um, at that same moment, there's such overwhelm because I think, wow, there's been so much extraction and abuse from 
of the earth for so many generations for at least here almost five five hundred generations for five hundred years so I think right now our our responsibility is to in in that decolonizing work is to really reevaluate the ways in which we have been brainwashed in school and in this capitalist system to think that survival and um, success and abundance comes from just working on our own because inherently that's impossible. We are dependent, we're, we're breathing air, <laughs> we're drinking water. Even the person that says they don't like water, no one would be alive without those elements. No one would be alive without the community and without the earth that is such a beautiful example of biodiversity. And so I think part of our, our, purpose in this moment is to do that work and to do that on learning um, with with patience and humility and openness to to um, to learn even even for myself or people who have similar value systems we come across circumstances or moments when we're challenged be that by by money or um I mean, I think money is a big one where so much of, of our values really get tested, right? So I think when we, what, what I think about a lot is how are we in, in, our, in our day-to-day and in the work that we're doing, not only working uh, for, for our health, um, but also how are we supporting the plants and our communities. And, you know, as we're doing that, I think it's having... Um, reverberations outwards and supporting the, la- the larger whole. Uh, Antonio P- Pere, am I saying that last name right, Pere? Pere. Pere, okay. Um, <laughs> Antonio, um, Tonia, the, 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 I would say, how do I say this? Now, you, you compelled thinking here. Thank you for your thoughts. Uh, but again, I'm going to play this, this stickler to rationalizing why we need to stay in urban centers as even rationalizing why we should leave urban areas. But it's, it's an attitude, and I'm thinking that that attitude would be anthropocentrism and the sympathy for humans first rather than, as you state, you know, we, we haven't we've forgotten or we haven't learned completely what that relationship is with plants, is with animals, is with the elements. And that's too easy on a chalkboard or in a classroom, but actually experiencing it. And I think that's why I wanted to talk to you because it's inspirational and seeing you experiencing it because you're walking your talk, basically. So is is there a rationalization for staying in the city as well as why we need to live because we're not getting the benefits of, of being in the city? Yeah. yeah, this is something that I, I've thought a lot about growing up in New York that always confused me. I, I thought, wow, we're living right next to each other, all these people living right next to each other, yet people can't say hello. And that's also dependent on, you know, the neighborhood that you're living in, the building that you're living in. So, so I don't want to generalize that that is um, what all of New York City looks like, because there's, I think, especially in communities where people have lived there for many generations, there's a very strong community. There are very strong communities and support systems. Um, but also due to gentrification, uh, there's 
there's been a lot of displacement of those communities, which makes it harder for those support systems to continue to exist. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I remember learning in school that actually cities are very sustainable places because the amount of space that each person is utilizing um, is obviously much less than someone living outside of the city that's also dependent on a car, whereas in 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 New York, New York City specifically, we have the train station. People are tend to be walking more. Overall, they're using and uh, consuming less resources. Um, so I think the city actually has an immense potential to reflect community values and resilience and how are we utilizing um, unused spaces to grow food say Central Park, uh, all along the Hudson River. and all these parks, there's a lot of grass. There's a lot of grass in New York City that could be used to, to be growing food for um, community. So I think for me, staying in, in the city uh, provides a lot of opportunity for how we can reimagine what urban life can look like. However... It's not as easy to say, okay, yeah, we have all this this grass and we're going to start making gardens, right? There's there's so much bureaucracy that gets in the way of that and, and the need for resources and money to make that uh, a possibility. Interesting, yes. Is, is it um, people who can't see any recourse but to stay in a city, um, is it because that they may be afraid of leaving what they do know as opposed to getting to keep learning even in nature, regardless of the consequences if you're taking too much. It's sort of a contradictory to say that we in, in the city we, we, we may be using less resources, but yet actually in a city, you, 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 uh, outside of the city, you begin to, to understand. If you're from traditional people, that you really don't need what is going on in the city. I, I understand it because that's where I come from. Um, also, the anthropocentricity of who we are, um, is that going to be taken into the future, if you know what I mean? Um, as, a, as, as we de- do now, more than ever, need to take the consciousness of Earth into the cities as you're doing. Mm. Well, I, I heard one thing in the beginning um, so I'll respond to what I heard. I, I don't think everyone can leave the city, and for many different reasons, but one is just the lack of land access. Less than 1% of Black people in this country are landowners. Right? And so that just speaks to the racist, systemically racist um, system in which we live in. And so I think what needs to happen, number one, is reparations and also land back to Indigenous communities for that to be a more viable option. Yes, we do need to be on land because we do need to be growing our own food and reconnecting to the foods that give us health, as well as what for whom are we growing food for, right? Mm-hmm. If we were to have more land access, then of course we're also going to be growing food for our communities, which is agro-industrial complex does not do it's growing food that kills us right um so i think that's that's yeah that's number one the redistribution of of land and um folks reckoning with with you know 
their 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 ancestors abuse and seeing how and in what ways have they inherited the lands and the monies that they have i see wow this is i want to go on <laughs> to converse but we we are running out of time um but thank you so much for the insights and your your energy and your thoughts and contributed a lot to first voices because I think that's what it's doing. It's contributing to the first voices of the earth. And if we were feeling that empathy, I think they would be doing the work that you are doing in going back and forth and understanding a little bit more how the human complex in this case works. And I'd like to thank you for, for being here, Antonia. Mm, thank you. And I, I would love to also in, invite folks who are listening. Um, my organization, Urban Gouda, provides knowledge shares and immersions that support in this unlearning and learning and reconnecting us to ancestral practices facilitated by people who either have those ancestral lineages or a strong relationship to the topics in which are being shared. Oh, great. Thank you. That's Urban Kura. Um, is it dot yes. .org or dot .org? Uh, yes, dot .org. Okay, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Thank you, Antonio Pere, I hope I'm saying that. I can't roll my R's, but hey. Antonio, <laughs> all thank, good. Yeah, all good. Okay, thank you. It's been great thank to have so you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this thank is, you. What an honor. Uh, thank you. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. And join us for our next episode, coming at you with that ever-continuing indigenous spirit that is with the land, with the earth, peace with earth. We're going to fly on out of here, continue to listen to First Voices Radio as we continue this ever-ending, uh, never-ending quest of being human. I like to say that and go out with this, sort of this addictive thought because we're not looking at the addiction within ourselves, the PTSD, the, the fear that we face with each other, not so much the dependence on another person but a way of life so think about that as salt in a sea is being played by the lumineers Like an old enemy 
off like a heel. Yeah, the doctors with their medicine left me to rock in my field. From the destruction out of the flame, you need a villain. Give me a name. I'll be your friend in the daylight again. So.